You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's scripture is 2 Corinthians 12, uh, verse 14 um, to uh, uh, chapter 13, verse, tw- verse 10. Here for, the f- here for the third time I am ready to come to you. I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is you, but you, what is yours but you. For children are not obliged to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granted that I myself did not burden you. I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? Is it not in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved? For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find not as I wish, you not as I wish, but that you may, and you may not find me as you wish, that perhaps... There may be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practised. Chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while I'm absent and did when present in my second visit, that if I come, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful amongst you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or did you not realise that you yourself, that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad that when you are weak, we are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I wrote these things while I was away from you. And when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you haven't met me before, my name is Coy. I'm the associate pastor here, and it's so good to see you all on uh, this Sunday morning. You know, we're in our final final week of our Second Corinthians series today, and as we see Paul close off his letter to the church in Corinth, what we see is the importance of Paul's authority over this church. See, all throughout this letter, 
it's been revealed to us that there has been this uh, this tension between the Corinthian church and Paul. You know, a few from the church had gone sour on Paul, drawn to flashy teachers and so-called super apostles, they called themselves. And so to some, Paul's apostolic uh, authority had diminished. They didn't see him in the same light as when he planted this church in Corinth. They respected him less and doubted his status and his role over them. So Paul throughout 2 Corinthians has been reminding them of his status as an apostle of the Lord and the authority that he actually has over them. And it's in this final passage that we're in that we see the climax of his defense. But more than just a defense, what we see clearly is Paul exercise his, his God-given authority faithfully, showing a, a great example of uh, as spiritual leaders as we, he shares his final words with the Corinthians. Because as Paul makes his closing argument to the church in Corinth, what we'll first observe in his God-given authority is that it has pure motives. Look at what it says in chapter 12, verse 14. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. See, Paul begins his his final section by letting the Corinthians know that he is ready and willing to come visit them again personally, which was a big deal. And notice that as he says, he's ready to come visit them. He says he wants to do so and not be a burden to them. When Paul talks about being a burden to them, he's talking about financially. He's telling them that he wants to visit the Corinthians, but not out of his own, uh, not out of their pocket. It reminded me of a friend in ministry who grew up in the Vietnamese church, served there, but went on to serve in in various other churches, like a Chinese church and international church afterwards. Uh, And when I was still in the Vietnamese church serving there, we invited him to preach at a a three-day conference. And after I gave him, you know, we gave him the honorarium um, for his sermons. And after he gave it back to me and said, give it back to the church, you know, because he had such a soft spot for the Vietnamese people, like growing up in that church. And he was a Vietnamese person himself. It was quite special, you know. It's not always the case. I'm not saying Pastor Luke and myself, don't pay us nothing. Please pay us something, all right? You know, Paul talks about in First Timothy to honour your pastors. But here, that was a special moment, you know, it was a special moment and I was quite struck by it at the time. You know, it was hugely encouraging, a real showing of humble sacrifice and faithfulness. But what it showed, my friend, what it showed me was it showed a great love for his people which is one of the main reasons why Paul did it, which is the same thing here. Paul wants to visit the church he planted in Corinth. He wants to see them all personally because he has a great love for these people. He wanted to see them face to face to win them back and in the process not tap into their resources. It's his pure motive of love that Paul has exercised his his authority throughout all of 2 Corinthians. He genuinely cares and loves the Corinthian church. He was deeply committed to them, you know, sending them multiple letters, wanting them to take, wanting to take his time out of his church planning ministry to go back and see this church. He loves them so much that he shares these words, for I seek not what is yours, but you. In other words, he doesn't want something from them but he has something for them. I love how well-known pastor and theologian John Calvin puts it. John Calvin says, Paul was saying this, I seek larger wages than you think, for I'm not content with your riches, but I seek the whole of you in order to present you to the Lord as a sacrifice from the fruits 
of my ministry. See, what a quote. See, Paul exercises his God-given authority over them with this pure motive of love to see them grow in the Lord. Throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul has used his authority over them as one of a, a pastor father we've been seeing. That as he says in our passage, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. You know, seeing them as his children while he was their spiritual parent, drawing on the general principle that in, in families, it was the parents who would provide for their children until the children were adults. So Paul, as a spiritual father to the Corinthians, did not want to financially burden them as he loved them enough that he wanted to be the one that provided for them. And this pure motive can be all summed up in the wonderful words in verse 15. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. See, for Paul and for any and for every spiritual leader, this really is the heart of ministry. To minister to other people by loving and serving them, caring for their souls. When Paul used the word spent in uh, verse 15 here, in Greek is ekpatanio, the only time it's found in the entire New Testament is here. And this word isn't referring only to the financial, but the more of the cost of everything. In meeting with them, supporting them, his time, his energy, his labor. It's only found here because it translates only not to, to spend, but to expend. Often described as somebody who expends oneself in the form of sacrificing one's life. See, isn't that amazing that Paul would say this? See, the scholar Colin Cruz says, such is the apostle's commitment to his converts that he is prepared not only to spend his resources, but even to sacrifice his own life for their sakes. Here was Paul, a pastor of this church, prepared to exhaust his own earnings and not be a burden to his flock, who was even prepared to sacrifice his life for them if need be to a church who had essentially turned their back on him and no longer respected him or his authority. See, it's no wonder after that Paul does add a bit of sarcasm saying, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? You know, Paul throughout this letter has used times uh, of sarcasm in what he's been saying to get his point across because it would seem strange to anyone if you would imagine somebody giving themselves wholly to others, yet the other person in turn shows them love, a lesser love. It sounds strange, right? And yes, this is what, and yet this is what was happening between Paul and a few of the Corinthians, which does make us see that sometimes the people you spend most of your time and give most of yourself to can be the ones who don't treat you the best in return, right? You know, even Jesus said this. Even G Jesus was treated poorly by his very own hometown in Luke chapter 4. You know, I've been part of churches where members adored uh, the pastors and leaders of, on YouTube and across the other side of the world, yet have such a low respect and disdain towards their own home church pastor who gave so much of themselves to the congregation. This is exactly how Paul felt. Yet he reminds the Corinthians that even if that may be so, I write to you and want to see you because I love you and I care for your souls. I want you to know the truth the freedom, the joy of God all the more, even if it means giving all that I can to lead you well. See, Paul loved his people and wanted to win them back to the Lord, which is why we have sort of repeating themes across 
these chapters in uh, 2 Corinthians. You know, Paul constantly needs to reiterate his love for them throughout this letter because as we've also heard from our sermon series, you know, a lot of what he's been said, what, what is said and done has been misconstrued. You know, these super apostles have been, have been twisting what Paul has been saying, what he's been doing. For many of the Corinthians, they were made to believe that Paul's motives weren't that of love, but one of exploitation. You know, it was a suggested to the Corinthians by the super apostles that Paul wasn't accepting the Corinthians' money because he was actually pocketing the money for himself. And Paul's, you know, Paul defended himself against that accusation at least like three times in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 8, chapter 11, and here. But it's here in our passage that Paul explicitly defends himself against this, saying in verse 17 and 18, did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? See, Paul is reminding the Corinthians, the church, to think back to the conduct that Paul has shown, but also to reflect on the conduct shown by the leaders that Paul has sent to them, like Titus and his brother. That Titus's careful handling of the money and and Paul's sending of the well-respected brother to Corinth was actually a great defense against the accusations made against Paul. He wanted the Corinthians to acknowledge the pure motives that were consistent across the board from Paul and the faithful leaders that he had trained up. That they too were men of integrity, motivated by love for the Corinthians. You know, as Scott Haifman says, with the examination of Titus's behavior and Paul's own precautions against suspicion, it should lead the Corinthians to, to the only appropriate conclusion. Titus's honesty is merely a reflection of the same spirit and conduct in Paul. See, Paul's defense was made so that there could be no possible charge of exploitation against him. And this is a great example of what I think good spiritual leaders ought to exemplify. Because in our current context, you know, the, the world, while frowning upon it, while it says to frown upon it, realistically, it lifts up leaders whose motives are not pure. You know, you think of leaders in the, in the corporate world, maybe, who are lifted up and climbed the ladder by ways of harshness and, and hurtful ways of exploiting people and others. Or you think leaders who are praised and glorified because their, their motives are, made, are to make themselves look good. It's quite ironic because the, the super apostles we've been hearing about throughout this letter were at the forefront of these accusations against Paul that he's, he's exploiting them and for having impure motives. Yet they are the ones who, in fact, have impure motives because they were all about selfish gain and self-glory, endangering the Corinthians, not Paul. And it's unfortunate that this type of leadership still remains in some churches today, you know, where spiritual leaders use their authority to, to, to bully or self-glorify themselves with motives, not out of love, but motives to exploit. But Paul's words and example offer us a great encouragement because it helps us see what faithful spiritual authority looks like, that it centers on one's commitment of love, you know, Paul has shown a love that is sacrificial by not burdening them. I think of Carmen, our services coordinator, who takes time out weekly to make sure things in our service are helpful and beneficial for our worship, for all of your worship on Sunday, taking time out to drive to far places, to be here early, to leave later. 
using her authority to put others before herself. It's a love that is intimate by not seeking a person something, but seeking the person. I think of Dan, our music coordinator, who doesn't see his team as, as, ha- as simply hands and mouths for, for a band, but sees them as God's children, taking time out to meet with them individually, getting to know them, seeing how their faith walk is going, encouraging them, praying for them, using his authority to encourage and point people to Christ while they serve in the music team. It's a love that gladly spends and expends for souls, like a parent to their children. I think of Michelle, our City Kids coordinator, who literally expends herself weekly, caring for young souls, which can be exhausting, challenging, even frustrating, yet she does it out of a gospel joy and excitement to see kids know Jesus using her authority to serve and lead others, no matter the cost. And what's great is that it's this consistency of pure motives and and conduct that often flow through among fellow workers like Paul and and Titus, like Titus and his brother who affirmed the same faithful conduct integrity as that of Paul who worked alongside them. See, when a pastor or pastors lead in such a manner, it makes it easier for those in authority with them to walk in the same spirit is what Paul is saying. See, Paul exemplified this and he taught this, but it wasn't from the goodness of his own heart that this stemmed from. But as he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 14, for the love of, not chapter 14, 2 Corinthians earlier, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, this was a love that stemmed from a love that was first lavished upon Paul. A love so powerful and life-changing that it transformed a man like Paul, who was previously Saul, who was charged to hunt down Christians and imprison them or have them killed into a man who would rather give, give than receive to a people who no longer respected him. Paul was influenced by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, where he knew of a teacher before him, Jesus, the Son of God, who had authority on earth which had never been seen before. Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not only did he command authority over the people who followed him or heard him, he had authority over the winds and the waves. He had authority over diseases and demons and authority that carried over even after his ministry. See, I love what Pastor John Stott says about this. He says, the modern world detests authority but worships relevance. Our Christian conviction is that the Bible has both authority and relevance and that the secret of both is Jesus Christ. He is unlike any other. Yet even with Jesus' supreme authority over everything, as we read throughout the Gospels, the authority he, he had wasn't used to be lorded over people or to exploit them. Not used to burden people, to use people, to self-serve. But Jesus' authority was one that had the purest motive of love. 
one that people could come to see who he really was and why he was there. See, where Paul said to the Corinthians, he seeks not what is yours, but you. Jesus said to the world, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Where Paul said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Jesus actually did that. Expending not just his time, his energy, finances, gifts to serve the people around him wherever he went in his ministry. But Jesus gave up himself, sacrificing his life by death on the cross for the souls of those that are his. Romans 5, 8, for God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A supreme authority unlike any other, motivated by a love unlike any other. See, Paul could only exercise his God-given authority with such a pure motive because he had already experienced it in the love and grace of Jesus Christ, which is what makes good, faithful, spiritual leaders whose authority comes from this, this commitment of love rooted in the joy and experience of the gospel in their own life. See, while, while having pure motives is essential in spiritual leadership. It does ask the question, though, of, well, what does exercising authority with pure motives actually look like? Well, I think when, I think it's when authority is used with the purpose of loving edification. Look at what it says in verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your up building, beloved. See, the word edification in, uh, in Greek translates to literally the building of a house. Essentially, the, the building up. It is to strengthen something, to be built up, which is exactly what Paul speaks about here in verse 19, that the authority that he speaks with comes from his wanting the Corinthians to grow in faithfulness, to be built up in holiness as Christ followers. To put simply, in a corporate sense, it's to help one another on the road to Christ-likeness. And this is a biblical concept. You know, Paul to the Roman church in Romans 14 verse 19 says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Or to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 11, Paul says, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. See, from these passages, it's clear that, that this word edification is something that involves all members of the church. There's a real corporate nature to this, you know, with the analogies used in the Bible of the church being things that are together, like the body in 1 Corinthians 12 or, or a building in Ephesians chapter 2. See, building up of one another happens through, through deep spiritual interactions and, and fellowship that helps the overall health of the church. And it's something done together. You know, as one writer puts it, Without mutual edification, the church becomes a collection of spiritual weaklings, a perpetual nursery for spiritual infants. And so Paul was a huge advocate for the building up of the entire church. And you can see why he's such an advocate for it, because it is, it's deeply encouraging when we see somebody care for you, right, and wants you to be strengthened, you know, to see you be built up 
in the right things. You know, there was a time I gymmed. I know that's a shock to many, right? But I gymmed and, you know, you'd have spotters where they kind of help you as you get, you know, get strengthened in that as you work out. I know you probably all watch videos where the spotters don't really help out and the gym, the weights fall on them and have a good laugh, right? But the spotters actually do help people out. And that's what the church is all about. It's about strengthening, strengthening one another to build each other up in the right things. It makes you feel loved, cared for, that somebody doesn't just love you on the surface, like a type of superficial love that is all of like word service, but a love that is deep, meaningful, and valuable, that somebody would take part in you growing as a person and maturing in your faith. It often reflects the motives of a person's love for you. See, while this whole time the Corinthian church questioned Paul's motives, Paul wanted them to know that he's been, what he's been saying all throughout this letter, what he's been doing all along is for the benefit of their strengthening in faith, for them to be built up in the sight of God. This letter written for the encouragement and admonishment of the church in Corinth. And I think it's important how we see Paul actually do this. Because what we notice from this whole series is that what Paul has shared about edification, he himself has lived out faithfully, practicing what he preaches. See, in Ephesians 4 verse 12, Paul teaches the church that spiritual gifts are given to believers. Why? To build one another up. And so for Paul, throughout the New Testament, this is what we've seen him do all throughout. He was a man gifted in teaching and prophesying, knowing scripture and gifted to teach it and proclaim it to the church. So Paul used his spiritual gifts to edify the Corinthian church by preaching and teaching faithfully, encouraging, comforting, exhorting, and strengthening them by sharing the gospel truth to them as faithful in scripture, in scripture. See, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 2, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See, it was Paul's preaching and teaching that was at the crux of his ministry, which helped transform and, and mature churches he planted and supported. See, while his opponents, the super apostles, would use their talents, not gifts, they would use their talents to preach and teach falsehoods, cunning lies, and worldly messages, Paul, at the cost of his own reputation, at the cost of his own res- uh, at the cost of respect, at the cost of relationships, would continue to preach the word as truly and faithfully as one could. As Pastor John MacArthur says, where did Paul preach? wherever he was. If he was in a prison, he preached there. If he was in a marketplace, he preached there. If he was in a synagogue, he preached there. It didn't matter where he was. And how did he preach? He preached lovingly, biblically, and doctrinally, and he did so promptly, tirelessly, incessantly, and with great boldness. Paul saw the importance of the gifts God had given him and used it to build up the church, which is exactly what he taught. But I think more than that, what I appreciate about Paul seeing him in 2 Corinthians is that he not only taught and preached to edify the church, but he also built them up in how he lived. See, Reese Bazant, Dean of the uh, Anglican Institute in Melbourne, says that the Christian life is not just taught, but caught. 
And that has been one of the strong underlying themes throughout this letter. We think of the complaints being made against Paul earlier on the letter where the Corinthians felt that Paul wasn't lavish enough like one of the Corinthians, you know, that trouble followed him everywhere. He made Christianity look hard and testing. But in Paul living that out, not only was it countercultural to, to the worldly views and value system in Corinth, but it displayed a life that was fitting of the gospel truth, that following Jesus meant persecution. It will mean affliction will mean hardship, all for Christ's name. But Paul didn't give in to the demands of the Corinthians who were on his back, but he stayed faithful by keeping his eyes fixed on Christ and living in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. In turn, building them up, those looking in, building them up by his humbling himself, helping them see the true cost of discipleship and to be strengthened in that. You know, there are other several examples in 2 Corinthians of his, of his life being an encouragement to the church to be built up, you know, his generosity to the church or his boasting in his strength, uh, boasting in God's strength in his weakness. See, Paul practiced what he preached, not leaving what he said just here on the pulpit, but actively living it out that the church may be built up. This is how Paul used his God-given authority. And there's something deeply encouraging about seeing a spiritual leader strengthen his church by more than just words. Because what it does is not just leave the edifying on the shoulders of the pastor. But when you see a leader model such edification, it inspires the entire body to join in. See, when a newcomer sees the pastor talking to everyone at the door, showing genuine interest, it builds up the church. When a youth member sees a gospel community leader help set up and pack up catering, it builds up the church. When a long-time member sees someone on staff involved in Zoom prayer throughout the week, it builds up the church. When everyone, all parts of the body start getting involved, what we'll start to see is the well-being of the entire body grow. The building and the body becomes stronger. It is strengthened. See, writer Tabidi Anwi says, leaders have to help our people see that a ministry of edification is not only the design of God for the church, but it is also the most efficient way of having their own needs for edification met. As they serve others, others will be serving them and together we'll all grow into the likeness of Christ. And it's that likeness of Christ that is important here because even before Paul had begun his apostolic ministry, before the first church in Acts was even established, Jesus in his ministry was, was all about the building up of his people, his 12 disciples you know, who would journey along with him everywhere, learning and growing in their understanding of God. Jesus is closer in a circle of three, you know, Peter, James and John who Jesus made a special effort to prepare them for leadership roles later, accompanying Jesus in events such as his transfiguration or his prayer in Gethsemane. Jesus was all about the strengthening and building up of his disciples. He says in Matthew 16 verse 18 to Peter, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Which as we've seen in the book of Acts, would go on and happen. And with Peter going on to lead the early church. And then his other inner circle, James and John, nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, would too go on and be prominent leaders 
in the early church, both suffering for Christ. James, the first disciple slain for Jesus. John was exiled for his faith. These were men who were deliberately and purposefully chosen by Christ as he led them. He taught them, he guided them, but ultimately he loved them and he built them up so that they would go on and do an almighty work for the good news of Jesus, spreading the gospel and making disciples of all nations. See, Jesus genuinely loved his disciples, built them up that they would go on and love and serve thousands of others, building up who would then in turn build up the entire church, the early church, which would go on and build up millions of people. And notice in Ephesians 2, the church is described as what? The household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God by the Spirit, with Jesus being the cornerstone, which is where everything is built up from and has its foundation. When it comes to the church's edification, we're reminded that our being built up is for and from this cornerstone, Jesus Christ. It all starts and ends with him. Paul wasn't interested in the building up of the Corinthian church to puff themselves up. To, Paul wasn't all about, you know, building up their church to be about good deeds or, or, or adoring, adoring Paul, to be strengthened than that. This was more in line with what the super apostles were actually doing and what they were all about. But Paul wanted, in, wanted to ensure that his edifying the church was for the glory of Jesus and Jesus alone. That's it. That was the building that has its foundation, that the building that has its foundation on the cornerstone, Jesus, was being well built upon Jesus, the cornerstone. Paul's desire was to see stones that were strong, body parts that were working in unity, Christians maturing, which is why we see him give this warning to them in verse 20 to 21, right? Paul is worried that even after his teaching example that they've heard and seen that the Corinthians would still choose unfaithfulness over faithfulness to God. That even after Paul's encouragement in the word and example of his Christian life, that the Corinthians would still go on and continue to live in sin. See, Paul started off this section, this final section that we've been in, sharing his love for them, that he would be happy to come see them in person. But here, he also expresses his his sincere worry that if he did come to see them, that he would come to see a church not edified in God, but gratified in sin. Ultimately, he fears that he'll come visit and see a church that is unrepentant, which would result in his visit being a very unpleasant one. See, as Paul continues in chapter 13, he makes it known that his God-given authority requires discipline when necessary. See, from what we know, Paul has visited the church at least twice now. The first time which brought about the first letter, 1 Corinthians in the Bible, and the second time which which is referred to in his letters called the painful visit. Um, But here in chapter 13, Paul is saying on this third visit, if I come to you again, and see that you are continuing to live in unbridled sin, 
disregarding what I've encouraged you in, living unfaithfully to the Lord, then know that I'll come to you. I will come to you in a very different manner than the first two. This is essentially the first, you know, passive aggressive email sent. You know, it's like the first email is like, hey, if you can get this done, it'd be fantastic. Yeah. And then the second email, as per my last email, if you could get it done, that would be very helpful. Thank you. And then the third email is like, expect a visit from your supervisor. Paul says in verse 2 to 3 in here, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. See, what Paul means by this is that the other times that he has visited, he's come humbly, gently, and meekly, just like Jesus on his ministry on earth, actually. But this third time, if you Corinthians remain in your ways, I will visit you with the same demeanor as Jesus when he returns again, when he will come again in power and judgment and strength. This third visit, I will not be so humble or gentle, but I will show swift power and severe discipline to those who require it. And it's not all too surprising that with authority can oftentimes come discipline, right? Because loving a person and wanting them to be built up and mature, sometimes it demands discipline when necessary. You know, the most obvious example is that of a parent to a child. See, Paul sees himself as exactly that to the Corinthian church, a father pastor, pastor father. He referred to himself as chapter, in chapter 11 as a father to the bride, you know, the church wanting to present this bride pure and blameless in front of the bridegroom who is Jesus. And so as a father, he cares for his child, which may mean putting her in order when she rebels or or goes wayward for her benefit. And this is actually a good thing because when we think of being loved and edified in the church, for some of us, it might give us this this picture of like being coddled. But for Paul, because he loves the Corinthians, And because he wants them to be built up in holiness and faithfulness, he lets them know that there comes a time where correction requires discipline. Where if a believer keeps being encouraged and admonished in the word, yet deliberately continues to disregard it and live unrepentantly, often the best course of action and most loving thing to do is to exercise discipline. But Paul doesn't actually tell us what kind of discipline he would be doing or he'd bring. But we can be sure that it would have been faithful to God's word. Why? Because in chapter 13, verse 2, we can see that Paul refers to bringing two or three witnesses, which was consistent with what the scripture said, so that a witness could see how he would act too, to make sure that it was faithful. To some, Paul's authority can be mistaken here, thinking that maybe maybe he's gone too harsh on the Corinthians. You know, first time, yeah, second time, third time, give him another chance that he would compare his rebuke and restraint with the justice of Jesus' return. Seems harsh. But I actually think in his response, it actually helps his case for him using his authority as a good spiritual leader. Because what is abundantly clear here is that Paul anguishes over their sin. He hates the idea of the Corinthians remaining in sin and dooming themselves by their disobedience, which demonstrates just how faithful a spiritual leader he was, that he really did not care for their things, but he cared 
for their souls. You know, Pastor John Calvin writes, Paul reveals to us the mind of a true and sincere pastor when he says that he will look on the sins of others with grief. It is right that every pastor should bear the concerns of the church on his heart, should feel its ills as if they were his own, sympathize with its sorrows and grieve for its sins. Paul grieved for their sins. But what I love about this last part of our passage is that even though Paul warned them of the discipline that may come from that, he reveals again, right from the beginning, his pure motive of love, telling him in verse 5 to 8, to in, in chapter 13, to examine themselves of their ways. You know, take a good look at yourselves to see how your life shapes up as a follower of Christ. But then look at what he says in verse 9 of chapter 13. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray. Even amidst his call for strong discipline, if required, Paul genuinely shares his heart with them that even if it means he will be looked down upon, even if in his inadequacies, infirmities are brought up, in his weakness, as long as the gospel prevails and the Corinthians are strong, are strengthened, are built up in the gospel, he will rejoice. Just as in chapter 12 where Paul says his own weakness leads to his own strength in Christ, here Paul rejoices Rejoices if he's in his weakness, it leads to their strength in Christ. That they may learn from his experiences to trust in God's grace. See, ultimately, what Paul deeply desired for was that the Corinthians would be restored. To these Corinthians who began as strong Christians, yet are now indulging in sin. To those Corinthians who'd been led astray by false teachers the super apostles, Paul wanted them to see them, Paul wanted to see them return into the arms of the Lord to be restored. A loving motive, which means he took no pleasure in having to discipline the Corinthians. But as verse 10 says, for this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul's main concern was their commitment to Christ. That is what this whole letter is about. He's concerned for their commitment to Christ to help them grow and mature in the joy and fullness of the gospel, even if it meant discipline if necessary. You know, as Haifman puts it, Paul's desire is that he will not be forced to exercise his authority harshly when he comes to Corinth. For Paul's ministry is predominantly for building up, not tearing down. And that verse 10 should sum up this whole, uh, whole letter because it really puts Paul's pastoral perspective, uh, Paul's pastoral purpose in perspective. That everything he has said throughout this letter is not to tear them down, not to bring them to a place of unending guilt, nor a place of unhealthy hatred, nor a place of impossible conviction. But Paul has used his God-given authority to plead with the Corinthians to be restored to the Lord to be built up in the gospel because it's the gospel that we get to see and experience the wonder of true restoration. See, Jesus in his death and resurrection restores the worst of sinners. In fact, all sinners, if we would believe and cling on to him. That means that even those Corinthians who require discipline, 
That means even those members who had gone wayward and listened to false gospels. That means even if the super apostles themselves who were preaching these false gospels, that means even you, even me, no matter how far or how far we may feel or be from God, restoration in Jesus is never unreachable. But listen to the words of Paul in Romans 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. God had given the Corinthians a great spiritual leader in Paul who wanted nothing but their hearts to love Jesus more and more. See, while the Corinthians were still in the process of growing in their maturity, it required of them a restoring and a reorienting. The letter of 2 Corinthians shows us that they needed to restore their relationship with Paul, restore their relationship with each other, but ultimately restore their relationship with Jesus Christ, which means a reorienting of their lives, to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. This was the heart of Paul's ministry. His God-given authority was used to build them up in this, to strengthen the church in this, into one whose foundation was built upon the cornerstone that is Jesus. So may we be encouraged and moved to do the same. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for 2 Corinthians. We thank you that through your servant in Paul, we could see a faithful leader love his church and want to see them grow in their love for you, of you. Thank you that in Paul's authority, you used him as somebody who would build up the church, not tear it down. And we thank you that he's always had a heart mostly for Jesus and that the more we read his writings in your word, the more we know of your glory, your authority, your love. Help us love Jesus to turn from sin and to turn to him, that we may be a church that encourages and strengthens one another, that we may be a city on a hill that builds up, not tears down, all for the sake of the gospel. And may our leaders lead faithfully and may our church edify each other faithfully. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.